0: And uh, before we go to Romans 2, go to 2 Timothy 4 2, if you would. 2 Timothy 4 2. And a welcome to everyone. Good to see you all. As we're gathering in here and continuing in our time of worship. 2 Timothy 4 2. Just uh, a brief reminder, brief word as we continue in worship. Uh, part of the main job of the church, 2 Timothy 4 2, if you look there, 2 Timothy 4.2, one of the main jobs of the church, the Word of God says, preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they'll accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and turn aside to myths. The, the church is to preach the Word, in part, because not necessarily that everyone's going to learn something new every week, that you might, but it's really the, the way that God exercises His, his lordship uh, over the church and for the church through a flawed instrument in the preaching of the Word. And, and God reveals Himself and, and speaks to His people and cares for His people, both for the sanctification and the care of the saved and the salvation and the care of the unsaved. And uh, we're not allowed to skip verses. You may have heard of men in times past, John, uh, Thomas <clears throat> Jefferson was one of them where he would white out the verses in the Bible that he didn't like and then kind of put everything all together. And uh, we're not really allowed to do that. It says, it doesn't say preach the words that you're comfortable with, but preach the word. And uh, I suppose, I don't know how it would go in, in your house, but it probably wouldn't go well in my house if our kids took our our... Uh, rules, as it were, and said, Mom, Dad, I'm going to white out the ones I don't like, keep the ones I do, or if citizens said, Mr. Officer, I'm, I'm going to white out the laws I don't like, you know, drunk driving, I don't like that one, uh, but we're to preach the Word, uh, and so as to let God exercise His care and, and declare His glory and His majesty and His care for the church. So with that, let's go back to Romans 2, just a little reminder. 2 Timothy 4 too, but turn to Romans 2 as we continue in our our verse-by-verse study through this great book, the book that many uh, from centuries and millennia past have considered uh, the most important book of the Bible. Uh, I've been benefiting and challenged from this study as I'm uh, spending time each week reading great commentaries, uh, more recent commentaries like uh, James Montgomery Boyce and John Murray and... Uh, All kinds of uh, of great commentaries, Um, and I I hope that you're uh, being well-fed from our verse-by-verse study. And we'll be looking at verses 7 through 11 of chapter 2. As some of you know, uh, my family, uh, some of us in our family, we were born with a a rare genetic disorder. Uh, It does some funky things to uh, various parts of our body, uh, part of which is our connective tissue and our cardiovascular system. It's a little tricky to diagnose. You have to uh, to do so. You have to run various genetic tests, and we've gotten great care at uh, Stanford University and Johns Hopkins and other places. Um, But you have to get certain tests, uh, MRIs, CTs, and uh, other things. And I want you to imagine, though, if I said, you know, this thing is inherited uh, to some of my kids. If I said, you know. Yeah, my daughters, you know, they they may or may not have this, but I I don't want to find out. I don't want to know if they have it. And even though we have the medical technology and great medical care and resources readily available to both diagnose and treat this, assuming that we hadn't found out yet with our daughters, imagine if I said, well, I I don't care if that's available. I I don't want to know. I'm not interested in that. That's kind of judgmental. I wouldn't want them to feel bad and have bad news. I'm not interested in that. Obviously, that would be an unloving and unfaithful thing to do as a parent. Because this is a a disorder uh, where you can die without having any kind of symptoms and die very young. Most people before the medical technology we have available to us in the last few decades did. Did. And it would, it would greatly help my daughters if I didn't do that and in effect said, you know, bad news is, is hard and uh, it's good to, to know the truth and to go through these diagnoses and potentially avoid some catastrophic problems and get some surgeries and different things that are very helpful, that are available. It would be unloving to refuse to, to diagnose and therefore to, to treat this thing when it's available. And in our next text this morning that we come to, Romans 2, 7 to 10, God gives somewhat of a, a diagnosing tool to discern and really where God adjudicates, and He has the authority to do so but he's, because He's God, to adjudicate something far more important and consequential than a genetic disorder and that's to discern whether or not someone has a living faith, if they're saved. Sometimes people are tragically resistant to this idea. And they say things like, well, th- my faith is my private thing, and this, you don't need to, we don't need to talk about that. They're resistant to the idea of, you know, what does God have to say about this, whether or not I'm Saved, I'm going to heaven, I know him. I was talking to a church leader in this town once who told me, you know, we don't need to, we don't need to talk about and think about if someone's saved or not. Why, why would you do that? Why would that concern you? That doesn't really matter. And I just, I was speechless. Certainly God is the only infallible one to evaluate. But since in his infallible word, he has given us things to, to evaluate and discern this. And since he's called us to preach the word, it behooves us to go through this. This is a terrible error to think, oh, well, you don't need to think about if someone's regenerate or not. That'd be like, again, with my kids to say, yeah, you know, we may have this disorder, disorder and there's treatment, but we, we, don't need to, we don't need to go there. We don't need to think about that. We don't really need to know. Terrible error. And so God in His Word is concerned about this and often says, in effect, in His Word, okay, here is what the life of the regenerate and unregenerate looks like. And there are many passages. I'm not sure how you could read the Bible or be a church leader, even call yourself a Christian, much less call yourself loving, and say, well, it doesn't matter. That's not something we need to concern ourselves with. When the Bible is replete with these things, Matthew chapter five through seven, the Sermon on the Mount, John fifteen, the divine, Luke eighteen, the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee, Luke fifteen, the prodigal son, Matthew thirteen, the parable of these soils, uh, Titus chapter two, Titus chapter three, Ephesians chapter two, Romans this ch- this verse here, and then later in Romans. 6 through 8, Galatians 5 through 6, and we can just keep going. It's a huge concern in God's Word because love is a huge concern and because eternal life is a huge concern. So it's dangerous. We don't need to think about our own or someone else's salvation with eternity at stake. 2 Corinthians thirteen five, where Paul says to a church, to the church in Corinth, hey, guys, test yourselves, examine yourselves to see if you are in the faith. We understand salvation is by faith alone, but a true salvation will not have faith alone. There will be works, a transformed life that evidence a living faith. And so that's somewhat of what's happening here in uh, some difficult verses in verses 7 through 10 this morning. Follow along as I read. I'm going to read starting in verse 1 of chapter 2, and I'll read through verse 11 just to kind of give us a little bit of framework here. Romans chapter 2, verse 1, therefore, Paul says, and remember, he's speaking to the, the context here, he's speaking to, uh, in this first century context, to, to religious Jews who thought they were going to heaven and were self-righteous, but were deceived. So, he's giving somewhat of a diagnosis, especially in verses 7 through 10. Therefore, you're without excuse, O man, everyone who passes judgment, for in the way That which you judge another, you condemn yourself, for you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. But do you presume this, O man, who passes judgment on those who practice such things and does the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance?" But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will repay each according to his works. To those who by perseverance and doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath and anger. There will be affliction and turmoil for every soul of man who works out evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek, but glory and honor and peace to everyone who works good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. It's the reading of the Word of God. So, verses 7 to 10. We'll get into the outline in a minute. And some of you have already been asking me about this passage, uh, some of the, the, tri- the tricky nature of it. Uh, last week we looked at verses 5, 6, and kind of 10, uh, excuse me, verse 11, which is a parallel to verse 6, here verses 7 to 11. And at first glance, it seems like verses 7 to 10 is teaching a works-based righteousness. Works-based righteousness, which is sort of a, a term that's synonymous with the idea that to get to heaven, you have to do enough works, or to be saved, to be regenerate. You have to do enough, you have to really crank up enough Uh, moral deeds on your spiritual resume to earn your way to heaven. It seems like that's kind of what's being taught here in verses 7 through 10, and some of you have asked me about that. Uh, If that's true, then God's Word is teaching heresy here, uh, is teaching a false gospel. So, I want to give five preliminary points, sort of five framework points to, to understanding this passage, and then we'll get into... Our outline. So five preliminary points to kind of prepare ourselves for a little bit of a tricky passage. Number one, very basically, the Bible cannot contradict itself. The Bible cannot contradict itself. Uh, We understand that uh, because since the Bible, all 66 books are from God's Word, God's not going to contradict himself. Uh, We're not going to, you know, God didn't have a lapse in memory between like the book of Romans and the book of Galatians, like, oh, Shucks, I I I forgot what I put in one book, and I'm contradicting myself. God is all-wise, perfect, and infinitely smart, so it's not going to happen. And this is the critical uh, interpretive or hermeneutical principle of the idea that Scripture interprets Scripture. To understand what a difficult Bible verse means, if it's not readily clear to us. We can go to other verses that speak on a similar issue. Scripture interprets Scripture. Number two here on these preliminary points, of course, the Bible teaches, the whole Bible teaches salvation by works is impossible. Getting to heaven by cranking out enough moral deeds is impossible. Notwithstanding what a recent survey I I saw taken among uh, American Christians said like 55% of them believed it was. Um, that's impossible. It, you haven't read your Bible very carefully if, if you believe that. No one will ever get to heaven because of works. When Adam and Eve sinned and rebelled, our great-great, our however many great-grandparents in Genesis 3, they, they plunged humanity into a state where now everybody inherits a nature that is spiritually and morally corrupt, which means there's threads of, of fallenness in everything we do. And God requires perfection. And if you're trusting in your deeds as your ticket to to heaven, you're going to be greatly disappointed. You're going to be able to run down your driveway, jump, and land on Neptune before you're going to be able to do enough moral deeds to earn your way into heaven. Matthew 5.48, Jesus says, you have to be as perfect and holy as God if you're going to muscle your way into heaven. And any sane person understands, uh, that's not happening with me. James 2.10, whoever keeps the whole law and stumbles in one point, you're guilty of the whole thing. Romans 3.20, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. By the works of the law, that just means by doing enough moral stuff, by trying to adhere to God's moral standard, and no flesh will be justified. It means no person will attain justified. That word means declared in right standing with God. No flesh, through those works, will attain to a righteousness that satisfies God's law, God's requirements. That's why no one's conscience is cleansed and at perfect peace until they're saved by faith in Christ. Your works cannot quiet your conscience that God gave you as a smoke alarm to your soul that will only be silenced and quieted properly through Christ. Well, third, of course, by, on the contrary, salvation is only by faith in Christ. It's only by faith. By the way, when we say salvation... Or regeneration, or regenerate, or justified by faith, or redeemed. These are all speaking of this part of, or the entirety of, this package of what it means to be saved by God, having been forgiven of all of our sin by the finished work of Jesus Christ, His crucifixion and resurrection. And you know, they all speak of something different of that package, Regeneration speaks of being that objective work of being made alive by God through the indwelling Spirit, the moment we put faith in Christ. Justification, again, that judicial act by God in heaven declaring you an irreversibly, permanently right standing with God. Saved, the kind of the catch-all term means to be rescued from something you can't rescue yourselves from. So probably the most important thing in Scripture is this idea that salvation is by faith, not works. Genesis 15, 6. Romans three twenty eight, and the, by the way, the New Testament is not teaching a new way of salvation. I was talking about that with someone the other week. So in the New Testament, is there like a new way to go to heaven? It's always been by faith in Christ. In the Old Testament, they looked forward. Now in the New Testament, we look back. Always by faith in Christ, not our works. Romans three twenty eight. we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Titus 3.5, he saved us not on the basis of deeds, which we've done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. And the word mercy means withholding punishment we deserve for failing God's standard and instead saving us. So, fourth, in our preliminary points here, fourth, the context of Romans 2, the context of Romans 2 is judgment, not salvation. And it's very critical to keep us from getting too tripped up in these verses we're about to look at. Number four, the context of Romans 2 is judgment, not salvation. It's not how does a person get to heaven. That's, we'll get to that conversation at, beginning in Romans 3.21, and that'll last all the way to the end of Romans 5. But chapter 2 is about this self-righteous person that is deceived, And God's saying, no, you need to to re-diagnose yourself not by cultural standards, not by your own standards, but by the Word of God. You know, a a parallel illustration would be like if I go to diagnose my daughters with this genetic disorder and I just say, well, doc, I'm just going to, you know, look at the size of their toes and how tall they are and how they feel. Is that, that's adequate, right? No, you you need something far more uh, involved than that genetics and MRIs and blood panels. So, God says, no, we're, so we're not quite talking about how a person is saved right now. Instead, in verses 7 through 10 of chapter 2, God is discussing His, his adjudication, His, and He's in a place to do that, only He is. And we have His Word, so we use His Word to, to discern that, where He is saying, He's adjudicating, here is what the life of someone who is saved generally not perfectly, but looks like. And here is what the life of someone who is not yet saved generally looks like. God's saying, I'm making an adjudication of that in Romans 2, 7 through 10. Also, you may have noticed in verse uh, 7, it says, look there in Romans 2, 7. Those who by perseverance in doing good, notice God's word, it says God's word, God's authority, God's love for us, in doing good, seek for glory and honor and immortality, which is sort of synonymous with saying they seek for God. But later in Romans 3.11, it'll say of the person who is yet to be saved, nobody seeks for God. So if this person is seeking for God, it can only mean they have been transformed by the grace of God with the result that, again, their life has changed and they have these evidencing works of of salvation in their life, namely that they see God. Furthermore, it says in verse 7 and in verse 10, they do good. But if you flip over to Romans 3.12 real quick, look at at that, look at Romans 3.12, Romans 3.12, it's a very unflattering, nevertheless, factual statement. Romans 3.12, all have turned aside, Together together they've become worthless, there's none who does good. There's none who does good. As God defines good, we'll talk about that in a little bit. But the person in verse 7 and verse 10 does do good, so it can only mean, this is speaking of the transformed life of a believer. Okay? Make sense? And so number five, then obedience to Scripture, our fifth preliminary point. If it doesn't make sense, ask me afterwards. Number five, obedience to Scripture does not earn our salvation, but gives evidence of it. Obedience to God's Word doesn't earn salvation, but it evidences it. It shows that it's there. And in addition to these verses here, you could go to, uh, if you're taking notes, go to Ephesians 2.10. I'll just read it. Ephesians 2.10 talks about this. It says, we of believers are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Someone who's regenerate is no better than someone who's unregenerate. A, a, a Christian is no better than others in the sense that we've only been recipients of grace. We all enter the world unsaved and in that unflattering condition that we read in Romans 3:11 and 12. But there is a change that God brings consequent of regeneration. All that by way of introduction to our outline this morning, then looking at verses 7 through 10. In verse 7 through 10, there's just two things, two hooks to hang our thoughts on. Here's our outline. Two ultimate categories of humanity as we're looking through God's eyes. And we understand this is offensive uh, to many of the sensibilities of fallen culture. Um, We don't try to be unnecessarily offensive, but we do need to see through God's eyes because He is the one who is our creator, infallible, Perfect truth. Two ultimate categories of humanity. So motivated by His love, God gives us this passage. Two ultimate categories of humanity. We'll see, number one, the marks and the outcome of the saved, and number two, the marks and the outcome of the unsaved. First, number one, the marks and and outcome of the saved. What are the marks of the life of someone who's saved, and what's going to be the outcome of their life? Verses, this is found in verse 7 and 10. There's sort of an inclusio structure here where you have the two, one point has a verse at the beginning of the section and the end kind of encapsulates it, and then the other point will be the verses in the middle. So, verses 7 through 10 describe generally what the life of a saved person will look like and then the outcome, their, their eternity. And under this point, this text will give us five marks of a Truly regenerate person. Five characteristics of someone who's no longer under God's judgment and has put their faith in Christ. Five. And the first two marks kind of involve our external life, and then the last three will be our internal life. Number one, of course, very generally, doing good. Verses 7 in the middle of 10. To those who by perseverance in doing good. Verse 10, glory and honor and peace to everyone who works Good doing good. This isn't doing good as the culture defines it. It's not, you know, culture's definition shifts with the wind. We're in a time today where culture and politicians call evil good and good evil. And Isaiah 5 has a lot to say about that. The, the This original term in the Greek text that translates the, uh, translated the word good refers to positive biblical moral qualities that that are being manifest in the heart and then work externally to obedience to God. Obedience to God from the heart is the idea here. That's how God's word defines good. Sometimes the word carries the idea of serviceable to God or useful to God. Galatians 6, 9 through 10, let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. Saving faith is characterized by obedience to God's Word, not perfectly, but as a pattern. That perfection only comes, 1 John 3, 2 says, when we're glorified in heaven. However, there is no saving faith unless there is a general pattern of, of a surrendered heart obedience to God's Word. 1 John 2, 3 says, by this, we know that we've come to know Him if we keep His commandments. Verse 4 The one who says, I've come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Hebrews twelve fourteen, without holiness no one will see the Lord. First John five three, this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. That's the mark, first mark of a living faith. Second mark of a living faith perseverance in the faith perseverance. Look back at verse 7. To those who by perseverance and doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. Perseverance in the faith. Continuing, not in perfection. You know, it's, it's not just a perfect line straight up. It's a, you know, there's, there's mountains and valleys, but a general pattern of progression. Persevering and trusting in obedience to Christ, battling it out, battling out the life of faith, falling sometimes, getting back up. And I can't remember who it was, a preacher of old said a, sort of a word picture of this idea, Noah fell down in the boat, but Noah never fell out of the boat, right? We fall down as we trust in Christ, but we never fall out of Salvation in Christ. Sometimes people will say, well, you know, so-and-so, so-and-so used to, they used to be a believer, and, and they used to be a Christian, and they're no longer walking with the Lord. They've denied Christ, um, but, I, but they're still a believer because, you know, 28 years ago, they, they, they made a profession, and they used to read their Bible. The Bible would say they were never saved in the first place because perseverance, not a one-time emotional experience in the past. Perseverance is the mark of saving faith. Scripture never gives assurance based on some, some moment I had on the beach or the forest or watching a sunset or some supernatural type of experience. Those things happen. They can happen. But perseverance in the faith, not peppered with experiences, is the mark of saving faith. 1 John 2.19, they went out from us But they were not really of us, for if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. The parable of the soils, Matthew 13, 20 to 23. There's four types of people. The one, the the soil falls on the sidewalk. The birds take it away. Jesus says that's the one who, they hear the word of God and Satan just... But then there's these other three. The one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary, and when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately falls away. That's soil two. Soil three, verse 22, and the one on whom seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word, and the worry of the world, the deceitfulness of wealth, choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. And then finally, the fourth soil, verse 23, the one on whom seed was sown on the good soil, this is the man who hears the word, understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some 60, some 30. And so only that last soil is speaking of a believer who bears fruit, who continues, who perseveres in the faith, not perfectly, but perseveres nonetheless. Persevering isn't how you earn your way to heaven, it is the evidence that you have a living faith. Sometimes you'll see someone who, you know, you'll share the gospel with them and and they'll blast off in their faith. It's like, well, that's kind of convicting, look how fired up that guy is. And then maybe a few months or a few years go by and they fizzle out and it's like, where'd they go? Well, there that soil two or three, that quick crop that had no firm, good soil, and it dies. The mark of truth-saving faith is in a few sprinkles of acknowledging Jesus, but the battle day in and day out of trusting him, struggling, trying to figure stuff out, but still turning back to him. It's a battle. I'm not concerned with someone who says, wow, well, you know, Eric, man, it's a battle to, to follow Christ. I'm never concerned about that because that's everything the Scripture says about a saving faith. I am, though, when someone has these blast-offs and then it's like, what, what happened to them? They're not fighting the good faith by the grace of God. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a great Reformed British preacher of the 20th century, said of these believers, they keep on fighting the good fight. They are not these giddy people who say that they never have any temptations or problems and who saying, now I'm happy all the day. Not at all. They say it is a struggle and a fight. They go on patiently with great endurance, End quote. That's it right there. And the reason the regenerate person perseveres it's because their faith is given by God. It is a God-wrought faith. So therefore, it's indestructible. Ephesians 2.8, it is by grace we are saved through faith, and this not of ourselves. It's a gift of God, not by works. So you can be sure if God gives you your faith, it's a pretty sturdy faith. And that's that weird sort of paradox of the Christian life. And we can be sure that if our faith was of ourselves, I mean, I I would have lost mine a long time ago. I would have lost mine like a couple hours after I got saved because of the kind of stuff I was battling with. But true faith is from God, therefore it's indestructible, and therefore the regenerate person, by God's grace, perseveres to death. Steve Lawson, one of my mentors and professors, has a fun little rhyme. He says this, quote, the faith that fizzles had a flaw from the first. <laughs> Say that one 10 times. The faith that fizzles had a flaw from the first. But that's a good way to remember this doctrine. So those are sort of external. Three more marks of a believer here. These are kind of more internal of the heart. Third mark of a believer They seek for God's glory. They have a heart for God's glory. Notice in verse 7: To those who by perseverance and doing good seek for glory. Now, at first this seems wrong, like, well, because sometimes when we think of seeking glory, we think of someone who's who's arrogant, who's very conceited. They seek for their own glory. But this, the context here in verse seven is speaking of something positive, and that's a, a, an evidencing work of salvation. So it can't be speaking of sin. In light of First John two three to four and First John five two and three, so it's it's the idea that they have a heart for God's glory. That Greek word there translated seek. It's it's it refers to a, an inner drive of the heart, uh, uh, the desires, the motivation that moves outward. They have a heart for God's glory. It's a wonderful thing present in every believer. They want to bring God's glory, and God is all about His own glory. That's for sure. Isaiah forty-eight eleven, God says, "For my own sake, for my own sake, I'll act. How can my name be profaned? My glory, I will not give to another." God is all about His own glory. And he should be because God's the greatest and most praiseworthy thing in the universe. And so to be a believer is to be saved into the family of God. And so we become what God's about, his glory. The godly psalmist in Psalm 115.1 says, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or drink, Whatever you do, and it's just picturing like even the most mundane things, give all, do all to the glory of God. Really, being a believer in part is basically just being someone who's been regenerated, that we would join God in being about God. We would join God in being all about God and his honor and his recognition and his praise. And that's a threat to somebody's heart who is consumed with themselves because they're unsaved. And so there's a sense in which this is the continental divide, beloved, between a saved person, a regenerate person, and an unsaved and re- an unregenerate person. This is the continental divide, giving where, glo- where glory goes. The believer is a pattern of life, seeks God's glory, the unbeliever doesn't. Just a few thoughts on what this looks like practically. First, this means that the believer loves hearing about a big God, the true God. They love thinking about and hearing how majestic and how exalted God is. That just irresistibly just gets their their heart cranked up. They They love hearing about the sovereignty of God, believers do. Because that sovereignty of God, that's the thing about God that gives God the most glory. Because if you think about it, the sovereignty of God means he alone rules. He alone is God. He alone is in control. And so, therefore, a believer loves hearing about a sovereign God, his sovereignty over politics, his sovereignty over rulers and kings, his sovereignty in salvation, his sovereignty over their trials, his sovereignty over the future and difficult things. The sign of a regenerate person is they love hearing and resting in the sovereignty of the God of the Bible. And that's the true God. Second, it also means they don't mind hearing about God's holiness and their own sinfulness. The the truly regenerate person, because they love the glory of God, don't mind hearing about the holiness of God and their own sinfulness. God's Word mentions sin, transgression, and iniquity 1,148 times in the NASB translation, which is to say it's just that's a big topic in the Word of God. The Bible is largely about God's holiness and view of man's sinfulness and God lovingly saving us. And so saving faith is okay with hearing about God's holiness and our own personal sinfulness. And more in a, not just, well, we're all sinners, but no, I'm okay with my personal sin being exposed and shown to me and God convicting me about it. Because that's going to give God glory. And Romans 2.7 says, a saved person seeks God's glory. It's going to give God's glory When the truth about me and my sinfulness is revealed, because that just shows God as great and as glorious as he really is, that he would save me. See the correlation there? As my sin is exposed and continues to be, that just shows what a glorious God that he would save me. And a saved person, this is without exception, is okay with that. The text says we could go to other parallel texts: Matthew five three to five, Romans eight thirteen to fourteen. We'll get to that later. A professing faith that cannot stand to hear of its own sinfulness nor God's holiness is a false faith. It is a false faith. Fourth, fourth mark of a saving faith: loving God's honor. Loving God's honor. Look back at verse 7. To those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor. This, again, this means seeking honor in a positive way, not in a sinful self-exhibitionist way. It's the idea of a love and gratitude for God from the heart that wants to please Him and be honored by Him. And sometimes we can recoil, recoil at this like, oh, that sounds kind of... That that sounds kind of weird and selfish that I would want God to honor me. But we we ought not be more spiritual than God because he says this is a real thing in the text. And in the parable of the talents in Matthew 25 and a similar teaching, the parable of the minas, that's just a form of currency in first century ancient East world. In Luke 19, God actually gives this as a motivation for his people that you would seek my praise and seek my honor, not to earn salvation, but because of the fact you've already received my forgiveness. And this is just like extra, extra, extravagant grace that God wants to add to your life because he's so merciful and loving. And Jesus tells a story where in, in Luke 9, 12, where a noble man goes to a distant country representing himself, and he goes away for a long time. And this nobleman gives some of his slaves a certain amount of money to invest. And the slaves that take his stuff, they invest it and bring back, uh, bring it back multiplied. He says, uh, the first slave comes and says in verse 16, Master, your mina has made 10 more. And so in verse 17, picturing himself, Jesus, he says, Well done, good slave, because you've been faithful in a very little thing, you're to be in authority over 10 cities. And so point being, God gives seeking his praise and his honor as a legitimate motivation for a believer in the Christian life. And that means we're not seeking to be honored by people. That's not a priority. It's a temptation by every, in everyone's life to have a secret lust for praise and honor from, from the world. But the regenerate person, by the grace of God, crucifies that. You know, when it comes down to it, I want to be honored by God. And if that means people dishonor me, people forsake me, people think of me as something of not, as a wacko or whatever, so be it. Because i rather have God's honor than anyone else's. That's the heart of someone who's been saved and is going to heaven. In our jobs, our family, church life, the people in our town, the believer above all submits themselves to God's word because they want his honor and they want his applause, his approval. You know, in towns like ours, we have all these little subcultures of things where you can kind of jockey your way through that subculture to the front to ensure you're you're, you're thought of as great and and you're appreciated and applauded. All kinds of little subcultures where the things in these subcultures that go on, they're not all necessarily wrong, but worshiping my own honor is. It's idolatry. A sign of a believer. It's like, hey, I may or may not be honored among people. If it happens, fine. If it doesn't, fine. I'm for God's honor. That's a sign of a person going to heaven. And fifth and last... The fifth mark of a believer, a heart for spiritual and physical incorruption, a heart for spiritual and physical incorruption, a heart, someone that has a heart, a desire for spiritual and physical incorruption. Look back at verse 7. To those who by perseverance and doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, and then the result being eternal life. Immortality. The Greek word means incapable of corruption. And it's referring to both the physical and spiritual realm. So you're saying, in what sense does the heart of a believer long for spiritual incorruption? What's the only thing that corrupts us spiritually? Our our remaining sin, the flesh, Galatians 5, 16 down to 21, talks about that. So this is saying that a heart of a a believer longs to be rid of the ways in which in their thinking and motivation and, and whatever else, they fail to honor God. The heart of a saved person is so grieved by the ways that their thoughts and their attitudes Don't line up with God's Word. This is point blank what Jesus is saying in Matthew 5, 3 to 6, which you can look up later. They long to be rid of spiritual decay in their life. It's a certain sign of salvation. They hate their sin. They loathe. Husbands, it means a saved husband loathes the ways that his attitudes and actions before his wife and so on, don't line up with the word of God. He, he loathes it. Not because he has to work his way to salvation, but because God has already forgiven it. And it means the heart of a wife who is saved hates the ways that her words and her attitudes towards her husband dishonor God. That's what, something of what this means here. And we can't wait till the day we get to heaven when this is remedied and we sin no more. Isaiah sixty six two, the Lord says to this one, "I look." It's like my blessing is on this one, the one who is contrite in spirit. Contrite means just grieving over your own sin. It's a sign of salvation. And furthermore, we don't we don't only long to be rid of spiritual corruption, but physical corruption. This word means that we also long to be rid of physical corruption. Just the ways that our bodies decay and pain and death and disease. We can't wait to get to heaven when all that is over. And that's not, you don't have to feel unspiritual if you want that, by the way. Sometimes think, well, I'm, you know, I don't want to think too much about it. I can't wait to get a new body that's not spiritual. Fooey on that. It's, it's a godly thing to be so excited for the day and it will absolutely happen where God resurrects all believers into the millennial kingdom and you're given a body that's incorruptible. What would that be like? So these are five marks, not multiple choice, but all inclusive. Not perfection, but a pattern. And notice the outcome. I've got to speed it up here a little bit. But these, the outcomes, these four irrevocable blessings that God gives because of our faith in Christ, very quickly, look at verse 7, the end, eternal life. Eternal life. This refers to both quantity, eternal, living forever, but, it, but it also when the Bible says eternal life, it speaks of quality, here and now. Jesus said in John 17, 3, This is eternal life, that they may know you, Father, and me, Jesus, whom you've sent. Eternal life. Revelation 21, 3 to 4 speaks of this. Jesus says he'll wipe away every tear, no longer any death. And, and beloved, words can't even capture what heaven's going to be like, a real heaven. I was reading recently, you know, people are always in search of exotic, amazing vacations. And I was re- recently reading about Fiji, and Fiji has about 300 islands. And there's this one island that's way out from the main island Uh, It's called Laucala Island, and there's a resort there called the Hilltop Resort. Have you heard of this place? The Hilltop Resort. And you can go there, and it is $44,000 a night. $44,000 a night. And you have to put in an application, and and the owner has to know a lot about you before they'll let you in. If you were to stay at Hilltop Resort on Lakala Island for a year, that'd be over $16 million. Beloved, heaven will make the Hilltop Resort look like a dumpster in Calcutta, actually. And, and you don't have to pay 44 grand a night to get to heaven. You just fall down and confess your sin to Jesus and put your faith in him. It's that, that true, that's straight up. Why God would want sinners like me to spend eternity with him in a place like that, I have no idea. None. Praise the Lord. Number two, he'll give us glory. Verse 10, look there, all these things. But he'll give, the idea is he'll give glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works for good, to the Jew first, also to the Greek. To the Jew first, it just means that they're the ones, as just like the punishment will be given to them in verse 8 and 9. It just means they're the ones to whom the, the, the covenant, the promises were first given in Exodus. But it's for everybody. Glory, the idea that we'll see the glory of God. We'll see Christ's glory. Third, honor. The honor which Jesus mentions that every believer seeks from him. You'll receive it. God will welcome you to heaven. Well done, good and faithful slave. By his grace alone. And that's all that's going to matter in that day. I assure you, all that will matter when you exit this life is hearing those words from the Lord Jesus Christ. Well done. Nothing else in your life will have mattered except for that. And then fourth, he'll give peace. Look at that that word there in verse 10, peace. He'll give peace. One of the greatest gifts God gives here and now. And peace is always in the scripture. It's twofold. There's objective and subjective. Objective peace. Is the greatest peace we need, peace with God, when we go from being enemies of God to children by means of the finished work of Jesus to wipe away our sin, and then subjective peace. What a blessing that we don't have to fear what the world fears. We don't have to be controlled by what the world is controlled by. Our pillow is the goodness and the sovereignty of God. Nothing more valuable than that. That's number one, the marks and the outcome of believers. Let me just take three more minutes to do number two, the marks and the outcome of the unsaved. We've got to finish this passage. The marks and the outcome of the the unsaved, number two, verses eight and nine. Generally, what are the unsaved characterized by? It's not that Christians are better. It's just we've received God's grace. There are four marks here of the unsaved. Look at verse eight but in contrast to the saved, God sees only two categories of people ultimately. You say, well, that's narrow. Well, you're not God and neither am I. Just how it is. Verse eight, to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and anger. So the first thing about the unsaved is they're selfishly ambitious. Not just the, the person who is insatiably consumed with themselves in a, sort of celebrity outward way, it certainly is that, but going about life where it's, it's really my wants, my feelings, uh, my my subjective thoughts that govern what I do and what I think. If it doesn't make me feel good, it's probably wrong. If it offends me, it's probably wrong. It's that, that line of thinking. If this didn't make me feel good, then it, it can't be something right. It's a very self-centered, self-consumed way to live, living by your feelings. Ultimately, they have themselves as God. Again, this isn't saying unsaved people have never done anything to benefit the world. They have. It's ultimately about who's on the throne of your heart. Second, they don't obey the truth. Verse 8, when the New Testament, word, when the New Testament used the word truth, it refers to the Word of God, and it also refers to Jesus, John fourteen six. And someone might say, oh, sure, I believe in God, but the, where the rubber meets the road here is, is a functional, a subordination to Jesus and obedience to His Word. That's what it's saying here. The unsaved, they don't like the idea that they have to obey Jesus. Third, they obey unrighteousness, verse 8. That's a consequence of refusing to obey the Lord? When you're saying, Nah, I'm not really going to have Jesus as my Lord, well, the consequence of that is you'll there'll be fallout unrighteousness in your life that's tolerated, and you think because your feelings and what offends you, because that's sort of your gauge, that'll be a gateway into all sorts of unrighteousness. Compromising. The ends justify the means. Well, God's forgiving, though. Therefore, that's obeying unrighteousness. And then fourth, they do evil. Verse nine. God doesn't only define evil as mass murder; it's the life dominated by self. That's evil because it's idolatry. Because you worship yourself—that I'm my own moral standard, whatever is right for me. Well, get with the times. I mean, this thing about sexuality and this thing about gender—I mean, that's okay now. No, God says it's evil, and there is forgiveness through Christ, but it is evil. And then finally, what's the outcome of that life? I mean, God's word is is soberingly unflattering. End of verse eight. There are four things He says: it's wrath, it's anger. Beginning of verse nine: it's affliction and turmoil. And because of the terror of these things, this is all speaking of hell. Again, Martin Lloyd-Jones, he said, if this wasn't in the Bible, I would never talk about this subject, ever. I totally agree with that. Why would we ever want to talk about wrath, anger, indignation, tribulation, distress, if it wasn't in the Word of God? But it is. Hell is eternal. It's conscious torment. Wrath speaks of when God's patience ends and he must justly unleash his punishment for those who refuse Christ. Indignation, it's not an out-of-control anger, but a decisive, a decisive controlled anger on those who refuse Christ. Tribulation, the word in verse 9 means affliction and suffering and distress, verse 9. That is an interesting word in the Greek. It means in a narrow place, and it speaks of Confinement. And it speaks of the misery of the inescapable confinement of hell. Revelation 20, verse 11 to 15. You will never be able to escape escape hell. You'll never cease to exist in hell either. And anyone who tells you likewise is not telling you the truth. Scripture is very, very clear about this on purpose. But it doesn't have to be this way. Because salvation is by faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus said, come to me all who are thirsty. Come and drink. What's the qualification? You just have to be thirsty. Thirsty for what? For forgiveness. For peace. For truth. For rescue from judgment. He said in John 6, 37... Anybody who comes to me, I'll never turn you away. Isn't that gracious of our Lord? Isn't that a warming promise? Matthew 11, 28, come to me. Everybody who's weary, you're heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Romans ten thirteen: whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. 1 John 1, 9, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Father in heaven, thank you for your grace that salvation is by faith alone. And not our works. We could never do enough, Lord, ever. And you and your mercy didn't leave us to ourselves. You provided the Savior upon whom our our sins were placed, that we could be rescued from the wrath, the indignation, the tribulation, and distress we deserve, motivated by your mercy. And I pray that we would, all of us in here, would rest in your grace and rest in your nail pierced hands. Turn from our sin. That we would love the glory of God and the holiness of God and the love of God. And that also, Father, I pray that this text would give us a heart for those who who are not yet regenerate, those who are not yet saved, that our hearts would be moved to gentle compassion for them, to pray for them, to speak the good news of the gospel to them without which they cannot be saved, to love them. I pray you'd give us all strength for the normal battles of the week.